So he says, but politics as discourse is itself a variety of reductionism, which I think, by the way, is mm. totally true. And how come yes. we never th- nobody that's all discourse oriented <laughs> ever has to fend off accusations of being a discourse reductionist? Yes. Like, how did that never happen? Say it. Like, Preach so. on it. <laughs> I'm Owen, and here with me today is Gil. Hello. Will. Hey. And Lillian. Hi. <laughs> um, <laughs> glad we're finally getting started. You have to fucking edit this out. I'm no, still I'm laughing. Leaving. This, the, this stays in. This stays in. Okay, fuck. <laughs> no reason to edit it. All right, so anyways. So last October, we lost the great writer, historian, and social theorist, Mike Davis. So we thought this might be a good time to revisit some of his work and dedicate an episode to this giant of left thought and practice. Mike Davis meant a lot to a lot of different people in a wide array of milieus, scholars, socialists, and leftist activists, trade unionists, urban theorists, prison abolitionists, and more. Starting out as a meat cutter and then a truck driver, he went on to write some of the most explosive books of the last decades, dealing with a dizzying array of topics from the proliferation of slums in the global south to quasi-apocalyptic social ecologies to arguments in Marxist political economy. To guide our discussion, we read the 2006 preface to City of Courts, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles. The preface was written almost 20 years after that path-breaking and astonishing book was first composed and offers both a summary of its original ambition and a retrospective assessment of its analyses and core theses. The book carefully reconstructs the social, economic, and racial developments that converged in late 1980s LA, such as the increasing political agitation of homeowners associations, massive changes to the built environment, gang violence, and the local tyranny of what he calls the, quote, Anglo-gerontocracy. It both illuminates that particularly fraught conjuncture and uses a multi-layered analysis of LA social life to anticipate capitalism's tragic and destructive trajectory. In the preface, Davis calls City of Courts, quote, the biography of a conjuncture, one of those moments ripe with paradox and non-linearity when previously separate currents of history suddenly converge with profoundly unpredictable results, end quote. Although it was written a few years before the Rodney King atrocity and the massive upheaval that followed, Davis writes that, quote, the smell of smoke was already in the air. We also read a more recent essay of his called Marx's Lost Theory, which tries to recover a Marxist account of nationalism and what he calls materialist political theory from Marx's more overtly political writings in the late 1840s and early 1850s. In the essay, he at one point describes what he thinks makes those writings so special, And whether intentionally or not, I actually think he provides the best explanation for why his own work is so potent and so special, in my view. So this is what he says about Marx's writing in these um, essays, pamphlets uh, at this time. He says, quote, these pieces defy simple classification as theory, 
journalism, or instant history, and perhaps are best understood as an original genre of political writing in which theoretical concepts are developed and applied, but not abstractly formalized in the course of trying to think and enact socialist politics. I think that's what Mike Davis was doing. Mike Davis isn't strictly speaking a philosopher. He was something much better, I think. <laughs> but I think he's an <laughs> indispensable guiding light for anyone that aspires to think in a truly materialist way. So I want to talk about Mike Davis's materialism at some point um, in the conversation, but maybe I'll just open it up to you all and see what you have to say generally um, about him and these works that we've read. Yeah, I, I'll lead off. Um, so this was actually my first you know, exposure to the writings of Mike Davis. You know, as I was saying to you all before, I'd seen his name floated around. I have Prisoners of the American Dream on my bookshelf. And, you know, basically all you hear from everybody is like, you have to read this guy. <laughs> and so reading this preface to City of Course, I think, you know, my my first impression was, you know, he does an incredible job of showing that the city is a site of what we would call broadly, you know, the structural forces, macro trends. But he also doesn't miss how these trends impact agents on the ground, but also how these agents, you know, uh, end up molding the, the trajectory of where the city is going for better and for worse. And so you get this, you know, understanding that, you know, uh, for his theory, the whole endless sort of, you know, structure agency debate, that's not quite what he, that's not where he is at. He understands that there's agency and he understands that there are structures and that they enable, and, you know, contradict one another. And so you get this really contradictory portrait of honestly reading this about LA, you know, I was kind of like, damn. I don't want to move there. Sounds like, <laughs> sounds like it's not going too well. But I also walked away with an understanding of how different parts of the city, from property mm -hmm. taxes to mm -hmm. owners to you know to um, gang leaders to public transportation, come and create this very specific site of capitalist social relations. And I thought that that's just a, a really remarkable work of both imagination and theoretical precision. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've like talked about this, like at a theoretical level before, like with, you know, our, our episodes on like, for instance, Lukács about how important it is to sort of have a concept of social totality. Mm -hmm. um, but that's very abstract when we talk about it with Lukács. And when you read someone like Mike Davis, it's like, yes. oh, that's what this means. You know, like the city breathes on every level and it all is part of an interconnected, complex, multivariate whole where, like you said, it, you get this sort of almost like parallax effect where he's zooming in and out of levels of analysis. And he's like, okay, now that mm -hmm. I've just talked about like the way that like property taxes, like weigh on like the small, small capitalist or small entrepreneurial class, like let's zoom out and talk now about how like this is actually situated within a larger movement of like globalization, austerity politics, and, like, free in trade in the Pacific rim and all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Japanese yeah. finance capital is investing in, in LA in the 1980s and very specific ways that he's tracking and thinking about yeah. in terms of these like macro and then, like you said, how does this actually matter for like people on the ground at these different levels? He's just got this incredible sweep where like he he clearly sees everything as like as being part of a, a process, uh, a, an overall process. Yeah, I really like that. It is both social totality, two things that we've talked about in a number of episodes in this class, in this, well, in this class, in, the, in, this, in, class. in this podcast. <laughs> um, teach we are much. here to teach, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> 
um, oh, no. yeah, no. Uh, but like, yeah, the concept of social totality, and then the question of like, what do we mean when we say something is structural? Like, an injustice is structural. Mm. What is that structural? Well, like, Mike Davis can really concretely show you what it looks like to think structurally. He's going to piece together things you guys mentioned, right? Like aspects of like the way that neighborhoods are zoned, the way that city hall functions, what the relationship between different neighborhoods have, what the, you know, how the, the built environment of the city is being affected and transformed by global flows of capital and all that. And, and very specifically, none of those things are abstract. You said like, it's from these like Jap Japanese firms to like these buildings in downtown LA, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just think mm -hmm. both of the, both of you guys I like, touched on actually, I think a really helpful place to start. Yeah. It's like nothing is abstract in his writing, you know, like he, he will sometimes, and that was, was one of the things that was interesting about the essay on Marx that we read because he wants to make, I think the same case about Marx. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I like what you said, uh, Owen, about how that description of what's going on in the class struggles in France, 1848 to 50, and then the 18th Brumaire, that mm -hmm. like there, there aren't abstractions in Marx there, right? He's yeah. talking in very concrete terms about disparate, disparate actors and agents that are sort of in transitional like kind of formation uh, mm -hmm. and their conflicts amongst each other. He's not talking about, you know, there's the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, <laughs> right? Like that is so, yeah. that is such a, like an abstract level of analysis that it's just actually foreign to how Marx talks when he talks in the political writings, right? He's like not saying that shit at all. He's, he's saying like, okay, these finance creditors had this or that, like, you know, relationship with like the political forces aligned only provisionally with like the petty bourgeoisie of the, of the countryside. We're talking very specific, very detailed, granular analyses and I think that's what Mike Davis does too. Yeah. <laughs> he never he never just talks about like the capitalist class. That's like that's foreign to his entire way of thinking. And I guess maybe like as a first pass, like, you know, if he's a if he models for us what it means to be a materialist thinker or to do materialist historiography or to do a materialist like history of labor or of urban architecture, like you have to be this specific. You know, you can't mm -hmm. speak at the level of abstraction. So let me Okay, let me ask you guys what you think about this abstraction thing. Because on the one hand, I, I quite agree that like the way that what makes the writing special is like somebody who is clearly armed with the social theory and enough knowledge to do historical and political analysis, you know. Um, but like, I guess I don't know what I think about these claims about uh, abstraction. Like, I don't think abstraction mm -hmm. is always a problem. And I don't think he'd be able to do mm -hmm. what he mm -hmm. does if he didn't have, wasn't equipped with a certain set of useful abstractions. And like, sometimes maybe I'm just kind of leading, leading my way, us to my like pet peeve of the way that people kind of talk about, you know, a text like Capital, where the objection is always like, this is an ideal type. It's in the air and it's really just representing a certain kind of capitalism at a certain time. And at some point that has to come come down to earth. Like, like to me, this set of arguments is kind of like in the first place, just misplaced. Like there is a role for abstraction. You use abstractions to illuminate things. And there's no way mm -hmm. of like getting around the fact that abst abstractions mm -hmm. are going to make some things salient and not others. Every theorist is going to make a choice. So there's this like demand in philosophical or theoretical thinking to like make things concrete 
always the local, always the practical. But mm-hmm. I just don't really, like, I think the potency of an analysis like Davis's is because he's presupposing the abstractions that are needed to illuminate more concrete mm-hmm. phenomena. And so in that sense, it's not like doing something different. It's like a different kind of, um, it's a research program that's making good on a set of abstractions. Like the reason you can tell their abstractions are useful and right is because they allow you to do this. Mm -hmm. So then when people are like, oh, but Marx doesn't talk about, you know, the gig economy. It's like, well, that's not his fault. Why don't you think about the good gig economy? You know, like, why don't you? Marx, he, he should have lived longer, I guess. But there, there's like this kind of way of being like, what about? And it's like, but that's your failure to understand the system logic. That's not Marx's problem. Like you have not yeah. understood mm-hmm. and yeah. therefore you yeah. can't approach history or the world in a way that gives you a picture of a totality because you're constantly like doing whataboutism. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point about the the abstraction being presupposed there. And in fact, we probably just take it for granted. But the minute analyses would just be like, I don't know, mundane cataloging, right? If mm-hmm. it didn't have that abstract framework. I also love just the the way that his the way that he uses capital as a reference and how he wishes there was capital for all these other different things, or he identifies different <laughs> yeah. things as the capital. So he says at one point in his preface to another awesome book about cities, um, it's called The Pig in the Skyscraper. It's about Chicago. In the preface to that book, he says that like Chicago history as it's delineated like its labor history and its class history as it's delineated in that book is like capital in the streets. Like Chicago is <laughs> Chicago history is capital real as like a, a real tangible set of phenomena that, you know, occurred. And then he also says at one point that, that he wishes Marx had written a capital or at least a Grunris, a Grunrisa of materialist <laughs> political theory. So yeah, I think uh, the point about the abstract, like I think that it's capital is the abstract framework of capital is I think what gives what animates the whole thing? What gives it form? All these, all of these very specific social analyses, and also building on that, the reason why he is able to talk about, you know, briefly in the other thing that you sent us, you know, Chicago, so concretely and so insightfully, but also, you know, L.A. is well, I think about it this way: we we talk about L.A. as if it's this, you know, this single thing, but you know, if you were just cataloging it, these are just, you know, disparate, you know, um, agents, mm-hmm. disparate neighborhoods that, you know, are bounded by nothing more than we just, you we use a name in order to say all this collection of stuff belongs mm-hmm. to LA. What instead, what he shows is, mm-hmm. you know, what he brings to relief, and this, you know, is the work of abstraction, are these, you know, these social relations of not only interdependency, but interference that you can't see just by looking at, you know, the disparate objects that make up whatever it is that we call LA. And so what he does to us is he, it, it is actually a very concrete new abstraction that he, you know, he renders before us where we no longer see LA in the same way. LA is mm-hmm. now all of these, you know, social relations. We use that language of social relations, mm-hmm. structures, and something's like, so what are you talking about? But what he does here is he shows it's not simply about return to the concrete, but it's also not about, you know, ideal type abstraction. It's about finding the abstract in the concrete and, you know, rendering the concrete sensible, you know, in a particular determinate manner. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, 
what I, I you know, not to be like too glowing about, but that's like kind of the genius of of his writing. That the specificity is it isn't simply I'm reporting back to you what I'm seeing on the streets, as if like also what Marx was doing, like the 18th Romare, he was just <laughs> simply telling you, oh, here's what you know this historical event looks like. It actually you know, brings into relief these abstract relations that aren't necessarily perceivable to the empirical eye, but they're also yeah. not simply just made up in his mind. Yeah. And so it gives you a broader sense of what it means to talk about something like L.A., talk about something like Chicago. Yeah, not, not just as like a heap, but as a dynamic totality, if I can use that language, the Hegelian language of the absolute. Jillian Rose has entered the chat. Uh, Jillian, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is like the thing, right? Like, yeah, clearly that's not what Marx is doing either. And like, this is this is great because it actually, I think, helps explain the difficulty I have telling someone what Mike Davis was, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'm like, he's a labor historian and like, that's true. But there's also so much more going on here. And I think this is why his writing. And also, I would say there's there's a couple of like contemporary authors who are like this. I feel the same way about uh, a lot of Naomi Klein's work, where it's like this is like explosive, electric, like journalistic writing, which, mm-hmm. of course, Marx also did. Right. The Neue Rheinische Zeitung, like, you know, he did mm-hmm. journalism for a long time. A lot of the work is like actually telling you what things look like, but in a, in a totally like theoretically sophisticated way with a view of the whole like a, of of the whole where like mm-hmm. it would be it would be interesting to imagine like what the opposite of i guess the opposite of this is just whatever the fuck the new york times presses every day right just like <laughs> like naive naive positivistic just relaying of facts just like no internal unity no connection no sense yeah. of history <laughs> or like you know how these things are actually like concatenations of political forces that have like that have trajectories and tendencies and like you know everything's open for him at the same time he sees like he sees the contingency of how these things interact with one another you know maybe one yeah. maybe we can maybe we can get a little bit into the article because i think it's actually really good but i needed a little help like figuring out what the hell was going on initially because like he's having this debate with like post-marxists and like supposed the supposed inadequacy of marxism to talk about nationalism oh, yeah. so can you guys like you guys can you like mm-hmm. help me like what's yeah. the background do you think for this sort of intervention he's making in this piece yeah so I think, um, so this, it was published in 2015, which is actually a little later than I think a lot of these debates about nationalism. Yeah. Mm. So there's a set of like, as I understand it, there are some parallel, there's a debate and then some parallel proxy debates. So I'm sure listeners are familiar that like in the 80s and 90s, you get like the communitarian debate, like the communitarians and liberals are arguing about whether or not you kind of need ethical foundations to a political society the the debate about nationalism is sort of like proxy to that because like you have better and worse forms of nationalisms and if you're going to have some kind of like common ethical commitment like is nationalism always bad but then in particular because of like the fall of of the soviet bloc you just get all these rabid nationalisms in the eastern bloc you know and people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. were trying to make sense of like why there would be such a resurgence in it and then like 
it's I, I'm interested to know what you guys think about about this because um, it happens at the same time that the sort of post-Marxist wave uh, takes off. So the number of things that Marxism does not account for is just multiplying. Like people are like, wow, stratospheric. The number of things Marx failed to consider. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Marx failed to consider my tummy yeah. ache. Yeah. What does he have to say about yeah, that? Yeah. Um, and so nationalism becomes really like the linchpin of this because it both in its like direct relationship to like the Soviet bloc, like why did nationalisms emerge if like communism can solve that problem? And then the, it plays into the identity problem, like the way people got really interested in identity um, and I guess continue to be, but like the mm -hmm. intellectual project and the, and the argument to, like, understand identity in community and I identity in a liberal society, like, I don't, I haven't even read a lot of this literature because it just seems like, like, there was just a world of debate about this. And, like, Marx just seemed like the least useful philosopher to these people, you know, like, the problem is that. Yeah, because classes. Class is secondary to something like ethnicity or nationhood, which mm -hmm. I, it seems like what Davis is describing. Some of these thinkers were trying to argue that there's something primary and non-reducible like about ethnic, about organizing political collectivities along ethnic yeah. or national lines. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those non-reducible to, to class struggle, you mean? As if non-reducible yeah. or even just yeah. more important oh, or prior to like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Davis doesn't have any of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's like no, 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 no. So, so I also, you know, um, so what I got from the article, so what I understand is, you know, also some of the the, the tensions in, you know, let's call it Marxism and Marx with the national question is, you know, mm -hmm. I can imagine there's some people like, but you know, nationalism is obviously a barrier to class struggle since you know right. this is supposed to be intrinsically an international, transnational, global project, and so right. it can seem as if nationalism is simply just, you know, a sort of an artifact of, you know, bourgeois, you know, mm. attempts to diffuse or corral class struggle and can only serve to break up links of solidarity. And I took, you know, mm. um, Davis to be saying something along the lines of that, you know, Marx had a more subtle or sophisticated understanding of nationalism that wasn't either an unqualified yes or an unqualified no, but it was about, you know, understanding what it can allow you to do in specific historical moments. And so, you know, uh, it, it seems as if, you know, Davis was trying to, to show that there, there can be, you know, organizing capacities, um, at least Marxist organizing capacities through the language of nationalism that can lead you to a broader um, terrain of social struggle. And yeah. so was he, so, he trying to say that Marx isn't simply some, somebody simplistic who had, you know, a sort of class determinist, you know, understanding of politics and thus nationalism isn't even a, <laughs> an object. It's just an epiphenomena. It's an epiphenomena or something. Yeah. But the, the, he goes to the journalistic stuff so that actually Marx did think about these questions and he he did understand what role they could play in in history and you know, and in the context of social struggle. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds definitely right. And I think that like you know one of the the kind of more basic gestures of what he's doing there is to say that look when you read Marx on nationalism you read him carefully and you read these pieces. Uh, what you see is like Marx pointing out that 
there has never been at any given historical conjuncture or one in one given nation state one iteration of nationalism like there's always yeah, these and he I does see. what he always does and does best he says like nationalism meant you know this to the like, rural peasantry it meant this to like small artisans nationalism meant this like there was a republican nationalism that was more based in like paris amongst the petty bourgeoisie and you know what i mean and so like that's he, he does he sees marx doing it i think a reflection of what i think what i think he makes mike davis so great and he gives like specificity concrete specificity and systematicity to a whole bunch of elements of a historical conjuncture. In the case of the essay on Marx we read, it's that moment like 1848 to 1851 roughly. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I also, you know, I thought that this was a really nice pairing that you did of the City of Courts with this article because I, I can see Davis, you know, inheriting a sort of version of Marx because the thing is, it, Marx isn't only just trying to um, describe whatever is going on, you know, with mm -hmm. the national question. The fact that he's, you know, being able to pick out these different modalities of how nationalism is working from particular social or class positions is also an attempt. And and to go back to what we started with to talk about abstraction, he's trying to do something you can only do through through abstraction. It's also outlining a potential horizon yes. of of escape, of transformation. Yes. And yeah. the reason why I say it can only be abstract is when you're talking about the horizon of transformation or escape or you know where we want to go, that's obviously not something that's right here sitting in front of you. No amount of concrete, you know, looking at mm -hmm. mere empirical details nice. is yeah. going to tell you, and so this is the path we must travel. Um, you know, this is you know, this is the possibility in this conjuncture of you know, what could be on the horizon for the future. And so I see them both trying to do this. So trying to say, you know, yeah. can I bring to light what would be the most useful, the most impactful, the most powerful way of, you know, resolving this struggle or at least, you know, show you what could be on the horizon if this struggle is not resolved. Yeah, that's a really, really great point, actually, because like, you know, any social theory needs to have, if you're going to look at a set of historical or contemporary social phenomena, you need like a principle of selection, like for what you need a, a way, like what what details are going to stand out and nice. allow you to construct a kind of dynamic picture of a certain moment. And you can't do it in a kind of global way where you just show this was the totality of France in 1848. Like <laughs> you need you need a principle of selection, and his principle of selection is a part. It's, like it's a partisan principle of selection. Like he, he hasn't neutrally chosen like what phenomena to focus on because I think he always has in view. Like, how do we identify the points of, like, pressure or levers, potential levers, like, in the historical situation that can be pulled to, in order to advance, so, like, you know, a socialist emancipatory horizon? And he even sort of the later part of his work started using the word utopia um, a little bit. And so I think that's that's a critical Ernst part Block of his work. Ernst Block got a shout out, shout out in the city I know, I saw that, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I saw that, yeah. I mean, there's there's he was often called, like, the a prophet of doom. Because he's so good, I mean, and a fantastic <laughs> writer, but he's so good at like dramatizing how apocalyptic the phenomena unleashed by capitalism are, right? Ecologically, mm -hmm. socially, politically, all of that, right? Just so he's, yeah, so he gets this title, like the prophet of doom. And he apparently was always very uncomfortable with that, with that title. Uh, because, you know, if you read his work carefully, you, ne it never, you never like go too far without him saying something about I don't know, invoking like the fire you have to keep in your belly, like as you as you face this. You like that you, he would use this expression, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like keeping fire in your belly, and talking about using other phrases like you know radical 
kind of politics of hope and yeah, that's what another thing I think makes his work special is that he can outline with such graphic detail, like a very doom. Like he gets doom pilled in all of his books <laughs> for a very large part of it, but he's not really doom pilled actually because he never has the outside a potential outside of it escape his view. You know, it's, it's as dialectical as like he's that doom pilled because he's like got utopian hope alive at all times. Yeah. I well, think you wouldn't even the, see it as doom, and I, I think you wouldn't see it as doom unless you hoped for something better, right? It wouldn't be doom. Right. It would just be stuff happening and this is how like, it works yeah. but you know why is it bad yeah and again a materialist approach to this stuff in history and politics can't downplay the severity and intensity of the yeah the negatives of the social phenomena that stand in the way of our emancipation like you have to look that stuff square in the eye and he does always mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he doesn't just like look it in the eye you know just like you know, uh, i thought it was really fascinating the way he ends the nationalism article where he's basically like actually we need more economic interpretation yes. and <laughs> yeah. not less and i read that know, and i was like so, shout out lillian like you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah energy. you could imagine like dave's like look at lillian just like yeah. are we uh-huh. are yeah. we on the same page we vibe but you know, but what's also I think really important about you know, particular Marxist analyses when it comes to economic interpretations, I think the bad rap and Lillian has probably experienced this the most out of all of us that you know Marxist skin is like, oh y'all are so reductive. Do you not know that the world is more complex? There's more to life, and we need a particular type of interpretation. It doesn't reduce things to zeros and ones, which yeah I think kind of goes to show that you know, people don't understand what the economic is if they think it's just you know, a bunch of numbers. <laughs> yeah. But you know. Numbers. It's about you know it's also about you know tendencies, and so what's supposed to be you know really enervating about the science part of what Marx is doing is you know he's not simply just saying here's how things are now. He's also trying to outline the implicit tendencies of capitalist domination and degradation. And so what I thought was really impressive with you know what Mike Davis did in City of Quartz is I don't know about you all, but I, I was kind of shocked to learn about you know the the gangs who had developed a truce. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out, you know, the, the police are the ones who mainly mess that who truce sabotage up. sabotage that they truce, have, yeah. But that can only be an evocative moment and that those evocative moments can only appear in Marx if it's not just, you know, showing the, the tendency and the actuality of something getting frustrated or thwarted or disrupted, but it's also outlining the potential tendency of what would a better state of affairs or what would a, a freer state of affairs, you know, mm-hmm. what, you know, what path? Could we have traveled to bring that about? And I thought in that moment, Mike Davis was saying something like one tendency that we need to focus on, even if it's you know, really implicit and hard to see in all of this catastrophe, is you know, this notion of imperfect, impure agents from the ground up trying mm. to develop the resolution to the contradictions in their lives. And and so, you know, I found that interesting relating to we need more economic interpretation because it's not simply about, you know, stating the facts of the case. It's also about being able to select out. So what are the tendencies in capitalist social relations that we should be worried about? But what are the potential tendencies, you know, that we want to trace within this mm. formation that could lead to resolving aspects of domination? And I think that's also inevitably abstract when you're talking about tendencies. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, something that you can just simply set before us and say, look, there it is. Yeah, you know, I am um, like three scro- scrolling through this essay and because I was trying to find the part where he like accuses like post-Marxist, like the turn to a uh, symbolic and like cult, like discursive discourse. 
The turn to discourse. Is, is it this line? Where he, I, I just have that. I pulled up that same line, by the mm. way. And he's, do you want to read yeah, it? You can read it because I can't find it. Yeah, he's, he says that. So he says, but politics as discourse is itself a variety of reductionism, which I think, by the way, is mm. totally true. And how come yes. we never, th- nobody that's all discourse <laughs> oriented ever has to fend off accusations of being a discourse reductionist. Yes. Like, how did that never happen? Say it. Like, preach so. on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Tell well, by the way, because, bro, to, have yeah. you um, heard of difference? So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Once upon a time, we used to just call that idealism. Well, see, that's the thing. So here's the thing that I find amazing about the, the nationalism essay is like when he concludes, I mean, and you guys are right. This is my energy. It's my move. Uh, more econo- economics, not less. And the people who insist on not being class reducers are usually the most reductive thinkers about the, the issue. <laughs> that is the position yes. I, I hold. Yes. But I do think that like the contrast with discourse the, the other potential uh, discourse reductionism is actually very useful. And the question really is, like, why do these people, and no offense to those of you who are listening, but, like, why why do you have to, like, not defend yourself against this claim? Like, the idea that, the like, yeah. the scope of possibilities is basically, like, determined by what I can epistemically foresee and, like, organize, given a prevailing... Mm-hmm. Like the question of where social change comes from or things that might disrupt that, like a given episteme, like what are the social forces behind it? And you can be generous to Foucault and say he kind of had some conception of this. But, you know, like it's just not true that in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, everybody was connecting all the dots. So at some point it does become a very (laughs) like (laughs) reified kind of sociological yeah. idealism that is very reductive mm-hmm. in what it's focusing on. And you can yeah. justify, and to be clear, you can justify a reduction. Like I do think people need to like get a grip on like the normative valence of using that word. It can be fine and appropriate to reduce. Why? All science does this in some way. You can't explain things without reducing. You can't, ex- you can't, have mm-hmm. models without reductions. Mm-hmm. You can't have abstractions without reductions. This is how we organize facts in life. You just have to know. The mistake is that you're trying to explain things, though. You're supposed to be proliferating different eff- right. discursive so, effects. <laughs> and, like, right. Okay, so maybe you're answering my question is like the, the hostility to reduction is actually a hostility to explaining things. And like yeah. Mike <laughs> Davis really wants to explain things. And if you want to understand where nationalism yeah. comes from, go talk to a small business owner and you're going to find out real fucking fast. <laughs> I don't think it's just like a biographical claim to say that, like, first of all, what a king for going through the late 80s, 90s mm. and 2000s, totally unscathed by all of that kind of discourse. But I th- I think that it, like it, it, it does have to do with like, well, two things. One. I think if you are really actually like genuinely like burning desire to transform the situation, right? To, to resist and to overcome like capitalism, if you were like actually animated by that, I mean, you're not, you're going to be reflexively like not reflexively, I mean, reflectively more, it's not maybe both reflectively and reflectively hostile to things that just so obviously are not going to help do that. Like if you've been involved with trying, if you've been involved in political organizations, he was t- parts of tons of organizations, part of the Communist Party, all kinds of different activist organizations in LA, a part of trade union struggles in various different sectors. And this is the second part. It's like, yeah, when you're surrounded by that and you're embedded in actual attempts to to make things better and to change things and you're a mm-hmm. part of these kinds of collective actions, I just, 
I, I can I can imagine he would read some of this some of this stuff that was like getting popular post Marxist stuff in the eighties and nineties, and it would just like like he just shake his head. Like at one point he says he uses <laughs> the word uh, um, he was he doesn't use the word conjuncture like he uses the French word conjoncture or whatever, and he's like. And he oh, goes, yeah. you know what? That. And he's like, and just forgive me for a moment for using a word that I would normally just like back up over with my pickup truck. But <laughs> yes. I was trying to account for <laughs> I was trying to account for what the what the French call a conjoc do or whatever. And like that's that ethos, you know, that can't be cultivated just like academically. Like it has to be it's it's real, like it's a part of his his life as and his participation in stru- struggle. And I also, you know, I, I like that. And I also like what Lillian was saying about, you know, reduction. And so, you know, and I, I found myself, you know, thinking, oh, is some of what's going on here is like, you know, they say, no, no, we don't want to become trapped by models. We want to like, you know, open the space for, you know, whatever insights may come. You know, we want to open, we want to burst open the borders so that difference can make itself known, whatever that means. And so, and to, 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 justify that move, which is, you know, and I'll say that's a legitimate move as long as you're upfront with what it is that, that you are doing. You know, if it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a type of philosophical aesthetic move, sure. But, you know, when yeah. it's justified by saying like, oh, by focusing on economics, you're just thinking about this particular version of the working class and this doesn't get at real life. Well, you read this preface to City of Courts and you see the impact of hospital closures because a county mm-hmm. doesn't have the fiscal capacity and, you know, on, on the other hand, the, the pincers of you know, employment management not wanting to give his workers health health care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you see the type of social life that starts to form in that disastrous you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, conjuncture. And mm-hmm. so you know, if you have this idea that you know, economics is simply how much money I have in my pocketbook, then Mike Davis will say, then you don't understand you know, the, you know, what it means to live and breathe this life. Right. How you know, When I was reading this, you know, I really got a sense of what it means to say that capitalist social relations, you know, they really shatter and break up certain social patterns of, of existence, you know, certain social identities and capacities for either solidarity or antagonism. And that seems to me, that is an economic reductionism. That is showing that, you know, this isn't simply, you know, there's, you know, economics and pocketbook issues, but then there's, you know, my identity, my life, my language, my music. No, of course, these are running into one another. But if you don't have a model to, sh- to kind of constrain how these, you know, sh- these frustrations, this shattering, this, you know, I like this language of this pincer. Mm-hmm. is happening yeah, too, yeah. then sure you can like dismiss you economics as you <laughs> but you don't realize there's so much more to life when it's like no that is where the more of life is often situated within that is how you can actually give it some definite but you shape. have to you have to actually like want to explain things though i like i guess i kind of want yeah. to insist that like <laughs> you have to act, <laughs> you have to like actually yeah. think in a more realist way like there are causal mechanisms and you can talk about it more abstractly as a model, like a mechanism, or you can talk about it more as like a process of selection in and out for certain social relationships and problem solving mechanisms. But you have to like think that like there is a systematic relationship between the the, the situation someone enters when, I don't know, property developers like start building in your neighborhood and you see this pattern of like a group mm-hmm. of people moving in and a group of people moving out and then like neighborhood. Po- you have to actually think that there is a reason 
why people react to that new situation in the way they are. And I'm convinced that people who are so worried about economic determinism don't really <laughs> believe such reasons exist. Like, I think that, like, I think people seem to be under the impression that people are so moved emotionally by discourse, mm. like by signals that they're sent from political elites or from cultural impressions. They're so moved by this that like what explained things is the pattern of discourse itself. So like you, mm -hmm. uh, why someone would have certain feelings about their situation is explained by the way that discourse is like shaping their possibility of response to it. So then when people do things that are very predictable, then you're like, aha, see the the, the pattern of repetition. This is the emotional kind of constitution of this group of people. But like, that's not an explanation. That is a, that is a projection <laughs> of like how you think nice. the discourse is and what you think other people could be reacting to based on what you're reacting to. It's not, so there's just something like, I think important about like a kind of a, a materialist per perspective in, in whatever way it's shaped has to actually think that people are responding to their lives in ways that are like not so dense with ideology that they have reasons to do things. Yeah. And that when you talk about the dense ideological like the density of ideology and how that does affect people. Like he doesn't say you can't, he's not saying like you can't do that. It just, you can't do it in a meaningful way unless you connect it with those, those right. pressures that are bearing down on people's physical existence, people's situational existence, their living conditions and all, like their work and all of that. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is great. The insistence on the, what, what's, what's required in order for there to be a convincing explanation, like you said, Lillian, is that you're giving reasons, but you're also illustrating a kind of necessity, right? Like the whole like post-Marxist mm. turn that we got, like, you know, one of our longtime listeners will remember one of our earliest enemies, Ernesto Laclau, <laughs> yeah. comes up here. And like the whole, the, the whole RIP, you know, we did bury him, but I guess we can bring him back out for one last horse beating. You know, the, the whole move of a book like Hegemony and Socialist Strategy by Leclerc and Mufis to say, hey, Marxists, you're economic determinists. You think that class interests like are what people organize around. And now you have to explain why that's not been happening, right? And the, and the way in which we get to do, so we're going to interject a bunch of contingency into the picture and say, no, there's not a necessary move from mm. class interest to political formation, right? To political agency or action. And like, I think Mike Davis wants to say, yeah, dude, Marx didn't think that that was like a necessary line either. He also recognizes that the formation of a political movement that actually represents working class interests, that's a contingent matter. But, you know, it, that, that's not to say that like we can so therefore say nothing more about how and why that happens, right? Like with the theory of like yeah. hegemonic articulation with Leclerc, it's just like, I don't know, I guess sometimes people think X or Y culture is more important and there's nothing more to say. And that's, that's just, so, okay, we introduced contingency and I guess we're just going to stay there. No explanation possible. <laughs> 
Whereas like, so the question of nationalism comes up here and the sort of rudiments of the theory that we, that he's pulling out of Marx is to say again, like, you know, we can't do this abstractly. I can't just say nationalism, good nationalism, bad, right? This is mm-hmm. an ideal representation that people have. It's an imaginary thing. It's culturally inflected. The on the ground differences between people's actual material lived experiences. Are we talking about a rural peasantry? Are we talking about a small business owning class? Are we talking about, you know, large landowners or like, you know, rentiers? They all says, says Davis, like for Marx, they have all got their own nationalism, right? They're imagining on the basis of their material situation, something different from one another by the nation and what it means. And now the question is, which of these is useful? for the project of articulating a political, yes. a political yeah. movement based on class interests, I, bringing necessity back in. To, to bring it all back down to earth, if you want to see the value of a sort of materialist social explanation, that short preface that you sent us, Owen, about Chicago, when he's <laughs> like, you know, do you know why there is, you know, there is funding for plowing the snow in the winter in Chicago, is because snow actually does disrupt commerce, profit, literally moving through the streets. I'm like, you know, that blew my mind because then it goes (laughs) sweltering heat on the other hand, Mm -hmm. is not a problem for the the comfortable middle class who have air conditioning and the movement of goods can still continue. I'm assuming it's not like 200 degrees and the asphalt is melting. If, when, we get to that point, I'm sure we are going to start to see public expenditures dealing with that. But But he uses that to say, Look, so when we are addressing to you know something like deadly cold, it's not out of simply humanitarian reasons. It's not because there's mm-hmm. a necessity to you know, protect the homeless. It's because if you have this mechanism, you know, you say this causal mechanism, you understand what the real point of pressure is. Mm-hmm. Airports shutting down. Cars aren't able to make deliveries. Um, consumers cannot literally get out to the shops when where they need to spend. But then heat, which he, you know, he you know, notes is you know just as if not more deadly than the cold. You know, people are on their own. You know, yeah, breaking yeah. into fire hydrants, and, you know, et etc. And so you can't grasp something that's so elementary like that. Why we have differing responses to the to deadly cold and to heat? If you don't have this, you know, this mechanism of so what it takes for the city, the what it thinks it needs to survive, who yeah. it's responding to. And so mm-hmm. I just thought that that was like a really clear moment of both abstract. Con- Concreteness, you know, yeah. um, there's nothing more concrete than cold. But then yeah. <laughs> there are these abstract relations of why it is there are literal expenditures to deal with plowing the streets, and it's not simply about you know out of the goodness of the city's heart. I, so I thought the determinant you, concrete. I got yeah. really excited about the snowplow thing because, like, when I moved to New York, the first thing I noticed about what an absurd city it was was that like <laughs> it snowed. And then everything stopped. And I was like, are you telling me that this is this is Ratchet. this is a world class city? People come to New York from all over the world. People love New York. This is Americans like this is America's flagship city. This is this is New York. And you're telling me that you got three inches of snow and I'm having a snow day. What is going on? <laughs> you know, like, I guess capital has to stop. It's too so cold. Then I, yeah, so then I was like Burr. walking around and I realized that all these people in the Bronx were like getting, like they had these like snow plows on the front of their like 
regular vehicles. And I was like, <laughs> what? Oh, and I asked somebody, funny. I was like, where did you get that? They're like, oh, the city will give them to us and then we can do it ourselves. And I'm like, they make you clean up the snow. <laughs> so then, and, and I was like, and so I, I was just like kind of so surveying the situation. This is and a Chicago centric podcast. If it's not obvious. Yeah. yeah we're pro Chicago, like, New York, go to hell. <laughs> New York listeners, get yeah, out of here. Yeah, bye. And then, so, and then I'm like, do you understand that like there's a way to fix this? Like, if you if you if you get up at five thirty in the morning <laughs> in Chicago after a uh, a night of snow, there's going to be a fleet of professional snow trucks, snow blowers that start at the end of the Ike and then get there. Yeah. They're out of there by six a.m. before rush hour starts, and mm. everybody's going to get to work. I had one snow day in college because there was literally like five feet of snow. Um, and it was just not possible to do anything about that mm-hmm. in time. Yeah, just, yeah. So anyway, New York. That was like, that's literally physical impossibility. So after yeah. I saw this backwardness, I was like, wow, you people don't take this seriously at all. And also no salt. Anyway, I'll, con- I'll continue. Uh, we can continue with the <laughs> I mean, podcast. But also, okay. But what I love about this is also there's nothing in the materialist theory that says that, you know, those with power will actually run things well. You know, there is all manner of people who are responding to their necessary yeah. constraints. It's just like, honestly, yeah. I think it actually would be better for your aims if you didn't offload this on random citizens, but actually <laughs> organize clearing your streets. But that's just me. You know, See, I'm not here to help you, the capitalist, but that's my advice. <laughs> yeah, this also makes sense to going back to the point you were making, Gil, about necessity, because I think it's a, there's a crucial distinction that Mike Davis is operating with, which is that to point out necessity and to point out how class position carries certain necessities with it is not the same thing as determinism. Because what he says mm-hmm. is that there, as like some kind of, you know, unequivocal determin- determination, because he says that like, listen, from certain class conditions and certain class positions, like there is a, let's say a kind of set of, of a field of possibilities, but a restricted field of possibilities. Yeah. Right? Something is necessary. Something is going to be necessary that is going to be, you know, affected, some necessary effect will come from that cause, class position or class conditions, but it isn't like guaranteed what, how that position or how those conditions will exactly translate into like a predetermined like outcome. So yeah, I just think that's actually, I just wanted to, before you, and Will, that your example of picking up a Lillian is really helpful for that because that's a distinction I don't want to lose sight of that, that you we're kind of implicitly working with their guild. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, he, what he does really interesting to preface the city of courts is he talks about that mayor, Mayor Bradley. Yeah. And, you know, he kind of mm-hmm. describes, you know, you know, how he kind of has, you know, lost his way. And then he talks about, I believe, the current mayor. And, you know, he's like, you know, who's more representative of the, the Latino population in the city, but, you know, is, you know, making choices that aren't in their interests. But, you know, even when he's talking about the example of like the gangs developing the truce, he's like, you know, the cops messed that up. But there were some people who tried to make it work, who were in power. And so, you know, I thought what was interesting there is that, you know, there are these, you know, incredibly formative patterns, but that won't necessarily tell you also what individuals in those positions will do. You know, Mm -hmm. it will tell you the constraints that they're operating under. And some people will make different choices. Um, Those choices will sometimes, if they aren't part of the broader movement, they won't work out. But it does say, like, you know, that it is not as if, you your individual identity, whatever that means, doesn't affect how you're going to respond to these constraints. He is showing that there's a broader field of forces and then concretizes it in how these individuals respond to those relations that they're bearing bearing up under. I feel like it also like bears on the problem of like hegemony, you know, like I, I've been, I was really against 
thinking too much about hegemony until recently because I felt like, I don't know, I just felt that it was like too wrapped up in a certain way of thinking about Gramsci. But the, the more that I think about hegemony, the more excited I get about it. Um, because I think that what he's talking about is when he talks about like a field of a field of forces is he's talking about the kind of oscillations of political hegemony and the point of doing the kind of analysis that he's doing isn't to say that oh actually capital and labor doesn't matter anymore like that's too abstract it's to <laughs> be like how does he as concretely as possible yes. how is the hegemony of capital over labor maintained and then and you can't only see the direct moment of exploitation for that. You have to see how it mobilizes a wider set of interests and conflicts in which people situate themselves. And so in that sense, yeah, like yeah. seeing it totally. as constrained in some way is empowering because it's it's in the service mm -hmm. of seeing um, yes. how the class structure as a whole evolves. And the other side of the, the doomsdayness of that is to say that if you want to understand how labor can shift the balance of, of, of forces, then labor also needs to seek hegemony in a certain way, which doesn't mean abdicating its, its you know, historic yes. role, and I'm using air quotes, as like um, a way of putting forward a, a vision of emancipation, but it's a way of making it a more genuine social collaborator and partner on behalf of the whole of society. And I, I think that's... <laughs> that's the that's the goal. The goal mm -hmm. isn't just like a workers' party, but a party that actually yeah. uses la labor as an anchor. Well, c yeah, yeah. In the in the city city of courts preface, like he references the socialist movement in L.A. in the twenties and thirties, and he says what made it so powerful was that it actually had a kind of consistent ethos, and it was like drawing largely from the New Testament and had like you know heavily infused by religion, whatever, but it was very potent, right? Uh, and what he says, because in, in this line where he's describing um, the new mayor of LA and how, you know, it looked like it was going to be promising, but it's just kind of centrism or kind of pragmatism mm -hmm. that they're, that they've devolved into. And he says like the left can't, it needs to be able to build a coherent like form of life, not just it's not just that class determinism again, right? So look what he says. He actually says that what what happened in what's happening in LA at this time, right? That he's writing is that is that the that kind of coherent construction of a collective form of life is happening on the right. Right. So he says yeah. what's made them yeah. so powerful, he says like he says in contrast, right, to the milktoast like centrists, whatever, he says Conservative Christian groups have built impressive political bases in local suburban politics, largely through unyielding programmatic tenacity. Odd yeah. to say, I like that he adds the odd to say, I guess he also has reservations about Gramsci. He says, odd to say, but many conservatives seem to have a better grasp of Gramsci than many on the left. Above all, they understand the principle that a hegemonic politics must represent a consistent continuum of values. It yeah. must embody a morally coherent way of life. I thought I was like, yeah, I was pulled I over it. when I read. I was pulled over. When I think I that's that yeah. totally true. I think, I mean, and I mean, intuit. I don't know if I can defend it quite that well, but to me, that's intuitively like how I feel. And 
I think it really is what's like missing, like another one of many things that's missing on Loved. I feel like every single episode, I'm like, this is missing. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of, no. have a lot of problems. It's like, does the left have anything Long going for it? The show, the show could be called What's Missing from the yeah, Left. Yeah, we have a lot of problems. Yeah. Yeah. But another thing that's missing is that kind of moral consistency because I think people have been trained in the past 50 years to think about mm. moral consistency and universalism as intrinsically oppressive. So everything is very morally right. fragmented. And yeah. the thing and the thing that draws it together. What a crazy idea. I just <laughs> I do, I think this. Am I wrong? I don't know. Um but like you're right. I just think it is maddening to think that that could ever have any grip on anyone's brain. Yeah, so like moral the irony of it all thing. is that yeah. without a consistent moral vision, it's hard to actually draw the lines of of uh, connection between the solidarities that are, are necessary because you need to have a program that people are like, I can see myself in this. And even if the movement isn't immediately dealing with my concern in the way that I want it dealt with, I know that I can make it, I can articulate it through this vision. And that's a hegemonic project. So on the, on the other hand, yeah, on the right, nice. you get people oh, like, how so did good. evangelical Christians get teamed up with Trump? We don't know, except... That like <laughs> there is a consistent line of argument that's being made and people could be like, well, I didn't think this was for me, but mm -hmm. shit, why not? You know, like we're on the same page. So <laughs> you have to think yeah. like, how mm -hmm. did all these inconsistencies get squared on the right? And part of it is shallowness. Part of it is actual contradictoriness. Part, but that's what they're doing. The left should be able to attract people for the same reasons. And yet we simply do not. So... Uh, something to consider. Fragmentation is not a source of power. What is, sometimes it's almost as if we forgot <laughs> that actually fragmentation was the thing that a lot of Marxist critique was responding mm -hmm. to. Yes. The fragmentation mm -hmm. of the social basis of power, the fragmentations of a coherent form of life. You know, fuck, being expropriated and torn up from the means of production isn't like, that's based. Glad I'm free floating. <laughs> Glad you know, yeah. there's very little connecting me to a, a coherent sense of life. And so- It's all it vibes is, now. It's, it's, all vibes but also like you know not even coherent vibes it's just That's like day-to-day -day vibes. vibes no judgment and so there's no freedom yeah <laughs> and there's no freedom in in fragmentation i get it most people wouldn't call it fragmentation they call it you know maybe they call it um they they think that they're calling a type of pluralism and all of that as if it's important for us not to have a coherent sensibility of the of the world we'd like to see uh, mm -hmm. in which you know plural values could flourish instead what's important is that we all have our own little thing and hopefully they intersect but if not oh well and like fine if that's the way you want to live your life here's the thing for me if that's the way you want to live your life live your life that way but don't act surprised when the right starts, you know, making inroads with POC. Don't act surprised when Herschel Walker out here populating the world <laughs> and somehow, you know, evangelical Christians are like, you know what, I'm going to go with him. No, I'm no, no. There's a yeah. way of making sense of that that it doesn't rely on some sort of silly, did they not know that he is like, you know, had all these relationships in the borders? Like, no, they know. And they but don't it's like care. They seems as a part of a consistent project. They're a block and they have specific political goals. And he's an avenue towards those political goals, and so that's that's where the judgment lies. Yeah, and so it's, it's like, why why aren't you doing the same thing? You know, yeah. what, what, what's wrong? And I don't mean like you personally. Obviously, no individual can do it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, because we're infected with like this notion that like we're singular that we and it's our singularity is something interesting and and special, and we're just not as singular individuals really that interesting <laughs> or special. Okay, I, like. 
You know what's special? Yeah, the hard a truth block. is most of us aren't that interesting. Most At least not, not so interesting. interesting that you know our idiosyncratic personality is enough to base a whole politics off of. Even, yeah, exactly. even if that, like instead of like liberty, fraternity, and equality, like millennials do and Gen Z, we like do astrology instead. Do you know what I mean? Like it's um. Oh God. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. So like, think about it. Like, I mean, oh, I'm not embedded in a certain form of life, and also you can never tell me what to do. I am unique, and like I have my own program. But then like everybody is reading astrology also, I don't like Scorpios yeah <laughs> you you are a part of a form of life like yeah, I don't know how how helpful it is it's but, like know. a way of like dealing with that I think I think and but then at the same time it's like so fake that like no one really believes it so it's also extremely like individualized like because that's the point of it you're just interpreting like what you want it just gives you in the moment a sense of like a coherence in the universe to like your special. But that must feel good. Like if you could just log on to BuzzFeed, take a quiz and find out like you're an INFJ, like moon rising, whatever. Owen has clearly not done any of this. <laughs> INFJ, rising moon, Capricorn-esque. And then like, you know, like, and then, the, and it'll just tell you like, this is how you should date. This is how you should vote. You know, so this must be nice. Mm-hmm. Sounds relaxing. Yeah. In other words, like no one can do the work for you of creating or generating a sense of a coherent form of life that can yeah. actually hold together disparate blocks of mm-hmm. people who have different values. And mm-hmm. so you can either say that that's impossible or understand that that is a the the project of a long arc that will take, you know, years and generations. But the thing is, the right was you know, you know, doing that it. works. They've you know, been they doing it. Doing the, the slow boring is, is that, and all is that. that yeah. the, one of the reflexive reactions to uh, to like forming a kind of morally coherent block is um, that you know you violate the singularity. Basically, you it's erasure. Like the, if you form a block with people, there's going to be a, there's going to be tons of erasure in there. You may have uh, you know all those different race race erasure, bi erasure, um, all these different kinds of erasures. You can't form Man. a block with you can't you know. Capitalist social dynamics erase the shit out of me every day. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm being like, erased right if that's now. gonna happen, like, yeah. like, I am I am super right. dirt right now. I'm under erasure. So like, well, let's try to make but, ourselves legible in some new way. And by the way, like Davis is very clear about like what the coordinates would have to be for that morally consistent worldview. He's that towards the end of the preface to City of Quartz, he says like yeah, it's actually quite as simple as like needing to consolidate a programmatic vision yes. built around a human needs agenda. That is it. Yeah. That is it. You know, one yeah. that he says isn't hostage to any individual campaign or political personality. And that is enough. Mm. That is enough mm-hmm. to actually like, you know, I think that's a good start. You know, as again, listeners will know, like solidarity actually requires conflict. We're all subscribers to the Nathan DeFord thesis, right? Mm-hmm. But that is a that is a a thread that could unite these otherwise disparate and like you know too, all too precious singular and fragmentary like nodes of struggle, right? A human needs agenda. It's as simple as mm-hmm. that. You know when when you ask people about specific policies, they fucking break left almost every time. You know, it's, yeah. How do we how do we turn that into po- political power? I think that does it for us today. Wait, can I just real fast, real fast? I wanted to read to you guys. You may have seen this, a line from Davis. Um, oh yeah, let's hear it. In his, it, it is from one of the last things that he said, because he, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, died just recently in October. Um, and in 
July of this year, he uh, announced this in the LA Times. And he said, I'm in the terminal stage of metastatic esophageal cancer, but still up and around the house. But I guess what I think about the most is that I'm just extraordinarily angry and furious. If I have a regret, it's not dying in battle or at a barricade, as I've always romantically imagined. You know, fighting. Mm-hmm. Oh, love that. He's, he's always been a fighter. We love yeah, the fighter, Mike. And rest in power. It's one of, it's one of the greats. A true yeah. comrade and thinker and, yeah. All right, well, I think, uh, I think that does it for us today on that note. Um, new episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Clay, Maxi Wallenhorst, Louis D, Jane, Jason Morihone, Nehat Kadir, Ryan Mernon, Mary uh, Dipple Kirstensen, John Schmiedel, Emily Dyson, Jack Condy, Josh Stadner, Abigail Schott Rosenfield, Peter Racuglia, uh, Shingo, Will Barton, Andy Cornell, Mac Parker, Mr. Martin J. Greenwood, and Rune Home. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.